According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again in the book of Philippians, Philippians 4. We're looking at verses 11 and 12. Everybody keeps trying to get me to hurry up because they want to learn about verse 13. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And uh, they want to start claiming that verse for all of the name it and claim it potential that it seems to have there and all the things we can do that our uh, fervent imagination can think of. Well, we'll teach it and we'll teach it in the context where it belongs uh, following verses 11 and 12 and uh, demonstrate that it's centering on the life circumstances that uh, the Father places us in. And so uh, we'll, we'll handle that as we get there. Before we begin tonight, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask our Father to uh, shape our thinking, to set aside our distractions, to humble us under the authority of His truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the blessing that we have. You keep providing it, Father, and again and again You show Your your faithfulness, Your grace, Your love, that we can come together and be blessed as we turn our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I ask that you would, um, that your, the teaching ministry of your Holy Spirit would be active through each one of us tonight, that you would open the eyes of our understanding and give us the ears to hear. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. We do want to take a few minutes for some Q&A. If you've got some questions and things you want to follow up with, the microphone is ready to go. In fact, uh, we might even take a volunteer microphone runner if we want and leave... Uh, Leave the sound engineer there in the desk. Wes, do you want to run the... Your prize for running the microphone around is I'll give you first question if you want. You can uh, appreciate that. Any questions? Anything uh, was not clear on Sunday or anything was confusing or anything uh, you heard on the radio or read in a book or something that your Facebook neighborhood Facebook group is arguing about? That might be worth discussing. We have a a current debate going on right now in our neighborhood uh, over the death of a mountain lion. And uh, tragic, uh, the, the, we have an animal rights person that just uh, thinks it's a, the sad thing in the world that that mountain lion was murdered uh, in, uh, and, and, how, and that human actually can't claim self-defense because uh, he shouldn't have been out there in the mountain lion's territory to begin with. So Anyway, the rest of us normal people read the news story and saw that a jogger was attacked from behind by a mountain lion and he, with his bare hands, killed the lion, saved his own life. And he was chewed and bitten and damaged and he's still hospitalized, but um, he, he choked the lion, he gripped the throat and choked him until he, until he suffocated and died. And uh, it's a marvelous story. It's a great story, actually, of, of human survival and, and so forth, but Anyway, that's the, that's the big brouhaha in our neighborhood now. So if you want to know the doctrine of uh, animal rights, biblically speaking, and why defending yourself against a mountain lion is not murder, it's not homicide, here's the biggest clue. Homicide is homo, homo, yeah, not lion side, not, you know, feline side or whatever. So anyway, there is a doctrine on animals. And, and here's the thing, if you are a biblical creationist, then you understand that humanity has dominion. We have a dominion mandate over the animals. If you're an atheist and you don't accept the Bible and you don't accept God and we're just a big bang accident, you're a Darwinian evolutionist, well then survival of the fittest and the mountain lion didn't cut it. So, you know, I mean, either way, either way, I, you know, so I think biblicists have, uh, have the better argument to make, but that's, uh, that's how that goes. All right. Any other questions? Doug, did you have a question tonight? Doug's working on a question. He's been working on it for a couple weeks now. So, all right, maybe next week we'll we'll get to that. Carol has a question. We'll get to that. All right. Would you please explain again how Melchizedek, the name? You said part of his name comes from the. The priest, Zadokite, and, uh, and par- Mel, Mel, Mel meant something else? Mel, yes. Let's, uh, let's talk about Mel. All right, so the name Melchizedek is, uh, and he is 
priest of God Most High, and he is king of Salem. And the book of Hebrews actually makes a big deal out of that. So, um, Melech, that's a pretty color. Um, Melech, how did I get that? I had that last time too. Melech is the word for king. And then Zedek, sometimes it's with a Z, sometimes with a T-Z, depends on how they want to transliterate the Hebrew. Zedek is righteousness or righteous. And so by the translation of his name, he is king of righteousness. By translation of his uh, title being the king of Salem, remember Salem is a shortened form of Jerusalem. Salem is actually the the oldest name for Jerusalem. But uh, Salem is peace, like shalom. Or the Muslims would say, salam alaikum. The, the Salem is the word for peace. And so he is, by his name is king of righteousness. By his city, he's king of peace. And then we're told that he is a priest of God Most High. He is the priest of El Elyon, of God Most High. And so really it's, it's remarkable because he is a prophet, priest, and king. We know he's a prophet because he prophesies when he utters his blessing to Abraham, for example. So uh, he really is a type of Christ in many, many ways. And uh, being the king of righteousness, king of peace, king of Jerusalem, I mean, he's ultimately a type of Christ that way as well. So does that answer what you were asking? Oh, so the Zedek part. The Zedek part is either with a Z or a T-Z. That's the same word as Zadok, the priest in David's lifetime, right? It's just, uh, you know, give it a capital Z and make it a participle. So Zadok it's the same, it comes from the same root, the same Hebrew root. Okay, thank you. Okay, excellent. Making me want to teach a beginning Hebrew class. This is, this is fun stuff. All right, other questions tonight? Or not? We can have fewer questions and more for teaching, actually more for reading. Let me take them. Are we done with questions? All right, thank you, Wes. Um, I recommend... I just bought a book, ordered it on Friday, it came yesterday, and um, by Bruce Baker, if you know the name Bruce Baker, Pastor Bruce Baker, Washington County Bible Church in Brenham, Texas. And I met Bruce several years ago, he was friends with Robbie Dean, he's been a speaker at the Schaefer Conferences in Houston uh, several times, uh, and the last time he was in a wheelchair, and he, he's on an oxygen tube, um, really struggles breathing. He's terminal, and he was diagnosed with a terminal disease. And so it's the reason why he wrote this book. And uh, it's called For Thou Art With Me, Biblical Help for the Terminally Ill and Those Who Love Them. So if you go to Amazon, remember go to smile.amazon.com and support Austin Bible Church. Um, But you go to Amazon and and look for For Thou Art With Me by Bruce Baker, and uh, you can come across this. Um, I'm just going to read the introduction and uh, see if I can get through it. You'll learn what a sentimental, dopey guy your pastor is. But <clears throat> why I am writing this book. So chapter one, why am I writing this book? I am dying. That statement by itself isn't all that remarkable since it's true of all of us. Everyone reading these words is dying. What makes that statement unique is that my process of dying has been accelerated. After many visits and tests and much poking and prodding, the doctors have told me that I have a terminal disease. In other words, I have an active illness that will inevitably end in my death. I won't die of old age. My disease will kill me. In August of 2017, I was told that I have ALS. After trying on a few other diagnoses first, this is the only one that fit. When I asked about a prognosis, my neurologist said, I'm fairly certain you will live six months. You could live a year, 18 months at the outside. Since that time, I've been told that the progress of my disease has been slower than expected. Now my doctors no longer guess at my life expectancy. But my ultimate prognosis has not changed. At some undetermined time in the future, if everything remains as it is now, the muscles that control my lungs will stop working and I will die. Drawing on my years as a pastor, I've discovered there are only two ways that a person may greet such news. The first is with varying degrees of fear. The second is with varying degrees of peace. I have never witnessed a third option. 
At the extreme end of the fear spectrum is panic. I recently witnessed such panic in a person I met during one of my treatments. Bob, not his real name. Why do they do that? All right. Bob is a likable enough fellow, but he is a driven man. Like me, he has ALS. He refuses to call his ALS Lou Gehrig's disease because it has nothing to do with Lou Gehrig. It is his disease. It is Bob's disease. After his diagnosis, his sole mission in life was to find a treatment that worked. He told me that he couldn't go to the bathroom in the middle of the night without stopping by his computer and doing a search to see if some new breakthrough had been achieved. He ordered experimental medicines from India and Japan. He sent me videos on cannabis and nutrition that made extraordinary claims. Simply put, he refused to accept what the doctors had told him. There must be, must be, something that worked. When I asked him why he was afraid to die, he denied that he was. He said he was merely thinking of his wife and children and how to support them. But I knew he was lying. He never mentioned getting his finances in order or the plans he was making to provide for his family. His entire focus was on himself, on getting better, on not dying. In contrast to Bob, there's, well, me. I'm not panicked. I'm not afraid. In fact, I'm routinely cheerful. And that makes me stick out, or at least so I'm told. Of the doctors and nurses that have attended me, the vast majority have commented on the extreme peace I exhibited. And most want to know why I have it. A few have asked me directly. More often they query my wife. One doctor asked my sister. But the majority opinion is that I am somehow different. That I'm not normal. That I am in possession of something the average individual does not have. And that's why I'm writing this book. I want you to have what I have. Really, there's nothing unusual about me. I'm just an average guy with a terminal disease. What makes me different is not who I am, but who I know and what he has promised. The good news is that you can know him too. And when you understand what that means, when you really understand what that means, you will be like me. Just an average guy with a terminal disease who has a peace that surpasses all understanding. So Bruce wrote this on, uh, it's signed Bruce A. Baker, November 20th, 2018. And uh, he got it uh, finished and he got it to his editor and his publisher and they, they just got it in print this week. And so I was happy to, to order that and, and do that. He asked three questions here at the end of chapter one. He says, linger and consider. Would you pause here for a bit and think about what we've discussed? These are important issues. Don't rush on to the next chapter without asking yourself these questions and taking some time with your answers. Perhaps take time to discuss them with your spouse or a trusted friend. Which word best describes my overall emotional state, fear or peace? Would those who know me, family, friends, medical professionals, etc., would those who know me agree with my answer? <laughs> All right, so that's chapter one. And, and they're, they're fairly short chapters, but... Um, I've read the first two chapters. I'll stop there tonight and uh, hope to read the rest of it. I'll, I'll get it knocked out tomorrow and uh, report back to you on Sunday on, uh, on the, rest of the, the rest of the book. Anyway, pray for Pastor Baker. Pray for uh, Washington County Bible Church. Pray for their pulpit committee and for the, uh, the men that they're bringing in to, to candidate. Pray for the process. Actually, Bruce read my paper on uh, on practical pneumology on how to find a pastor, what a pulpit committee needs to know in selecting a pastor for a local church. And uh, so uh, that's the procedure they want to follow. They want their elders and members of the church to be listening for the voice of their shepherd and to apply the biblical principles and not resort to some corporate uh, headhunter uh, mentality for hiring their next CEO. That's not what it's about. All right. Turning now to Philippians 4. What do you speak from? You know, when you talk about the source, the origin, the motivation for what you're saying, you know, he says, not that I speak from want. Uh, Deprivation can motivate a lot of things. And if you are fixated on a deficiency, if you're just occupied with a lack, with a need, with a problem, and then you become occupied with that, with that want, 
that can then generate everything. That can spark your thinking, spark your words, spark your actions, that can drive a lot of things. And we don't want our circumstances to be in the driver's seat. We don't want emotions to be in the driver's seat. We, don't, we, want, we want the Word of God to be in the driver's seat. As we engage with the Word of God in our thinking and as it shapes our thinking and transforms our being. And so we don't want to speak from want. And we had a point of study on this. Let me just get the slideshow cut up to where we left off. We are in the midst of um, main point two then in this outline. Paul frames the personal financial spectrum as a context for contentment. Neither extreme on the spectrum makes contentment impossible when a believer walks by faith, ever learning and coming to the knowledge of the truth. And when we diagram these spectrums, I forget now, here we have it, I drew this for you the other day. Everyone's so impressed with my artwork, I wanted to show it off again. The fact that you have a spectrum, all right, and I draw the spectrum like a smiley face, because it's the happiness spectrum, or the financial spectrum, or the health spectrum, or whatever spectrum you have, and we should learn to be content, because we're all on a spectrum somewhere. And either either on the negative polarity or the positive polarity, if I change colors here. So over here on the negative end of things, maybe you're the poorest person on the planet. Over here on the positive end of things, you're the richest guy on the planet. Chances are you're probably somewhere in the middle, right? Wherever you are. If you're an American, you're already up here in the top bracket anyway, worldwide standings and historical standards anyway. Uh, but wherever you are on that financial spectrum, you are where God wants you to be because he's put you there. And so uh, contentment is the key because it's acceptance of the will of God. And malcontentment is, uh, is rebellion because you think you're down here and you think you deserve to be up here and so you get bitter and you're angry at God and you say, why don't I have more? And uh, of course tonight in Philippians 4, the context is finances. But this concept applies everywhere. All right, you can draw the, when, when I draw the, the health spectrum, guess what it looks like? It's the same spectrum, okay? And there's the sickest guy on the planet and the healthiest guy on the planet. And somewhere in between, and wherever you are, either more healthy or less healthy, what have you, okay? And, and it slides, and we, we experience different places at different times of our life. And generally, the older we get, it slides one direction, okay? But that's just what it is, and we all deal with it. And uh, the, But the fact of the matter is, though the outer man perishes, the inner man is renewed day by day. Nowhere where we are on the financial spectrum, on the health spectrum, or any other spectrum should impact our Christian walk. In other words, it should be irrelevant to our Christian walk. These are simply the testing venues. The testing venues, right? And it's almost like the, um, the uh, what was that cell phone commercial, Verizon, the old can you hear me now commercial, right? Only in God's version is, do you love me now? Right? Do you love me now? Do you love me now? And, and are we going to stay faithful? Are we going to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength even when He slides you down in the economic strata or when He slides you down on the health strata or when He slides you down on the, the relationship spectrum, say, where, uh, you know, whatever the case may be, whatever uh, spectrum you're looking at. And you think, well, why am I not married? Or why don't I have a girlfriend? Or why you know, don't I have a better job? Or, or all these things. See, contentment is the key. And neither extreme on the spectrum makes contentment impossible. And so this is what we're looking at. And this is what we see in, uh, in this. And we have examples of Jesus and examples of Paul with local churches. Examples of uh, recognizing the fact that contentment does not alter the reality of the need. He's still suffering need. He's just content about it. It allows for thinking to not be driven by that need. It doesn't come from there. Your thinking comes from the Word of God. Your words come from the Word of God. Your words, your actions come from the Word of God. They don't come from the circumstances. See? And uh, I, you know, we've seen this in a lot of places. We've seen uh, people with hurt, and that hurt follows them. And we see uh, hurt, and now they want to take it out on somebody else <laughs> because of something in years ago, something that happened years ago. And uh, I've seen, um, <laughs> I've seen uh, women coaching other women on how to divorce, and and they're bitterly on the side of 
this woman to get everything she can get and do this and this and this and just ugly and vehement about it. And well, where's that coming from? Well, it's coming from a very ugly place. And it's coming from the hurt that she herself had 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And the, the, the thoughts, the words, the actions, they're coming from a very dark place. Likewise here, he says, I'm not speaking from what? Deficiency is not the source of this discussion. It's not what I'm speaking from. It's not what I'm thinking from. It's not what I'm speaking from. It's not what I'm acting out of. For I have learned to be content. And so contentment. And uh, this was Sunday morning. We were dealing with contentment uh, in uh, the adjective of autarkes, the noun of autarkeia, the verb of archeo, and uh, the aspects here. And so uh, if you missed it, you can get the MP3. It's sitting there on the website doing nothing, just waiting for you to click. And then uh, then you can download it and you will have it as well. Where we left off, what I want to get back to is this progression. And there's a, there's a remarkable progression in three stages. Learning, knowing, and then the way it's translated, I don't like learning the secret. And we've got to talk about that here tonight. But when you look at verse 11, verse 12a, and verse 12b, you can see three steps in the process here. He says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. So there's step one in how to do this. It's called learning. It's called being a disciple. And this is one I think we're, we're familiar with. We're good with this one. We, we major on this one. It's a strong point at Austin Bible Church. Uh, learning is the activity of a disciple. A disciple is a learner. And so I uh, remember in John 8, 31, Jesus said, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Being a disciple is, is to be a learner, not to be a saved one. You can be saved and not be a disciple. In fact, I think it's a small percentage. I think it's a third. I mean, if just on a ratio, it may not even be a third for that matter. But when you go to the parable of the sower and the seed that was sown by the roadside they're not even saved but the seed that was sown on the rocky ground the seed that was sown on the thorny ground are both believers they're just not bearing fruit they're not growing and then the seed that's sown on good soil that's one third of the parable of those that are born again one third is fruit bearing okay and even there there's distinctions because even there some are bearing 30 fold 60 fold 100 fold right so there's uh, degrees of, of fruit bearing there not every believer is a disciple. And uh, you know, it's a, an amazing doctrine to preach to a room full of people that are here learning. It's, uh, you, know, you, you really need to preach this to people that aren't here learning. And that's what it's about, is making disciples. Taking non-disciples and turning them into disciples by uh, orienting them to the fact that their current lifestyle is not a learning lifestyle. And that they need to adopt a learning lifestyle in the Word of God because that's what a disciple is called to do. All right, so the verb is monthano, the noun is methetes, and we're solid on that. If you really want to track them down, goodness, there's disciples everywhere in the New Testament. 262 times you have the word disciple in the New Testament, and 25 times you have the verb, monthano. Okay, now, then there's knowing. We go from learning to knowing. And you can never know until you first learn, and so the, the, the progression comes in this way. I have learned to be content. And then in verse 12, I know how to, and then this word get along. Okay? And get along is interesting. But he also says, I also know how to live in prosperity. And so here's the contrast. And it really represents that spectrum. Humble means on the one hand, prosperity on the other hand, and the whole range in between. And this is a matter for oida. This is a matter for full knowledge. This is not gnosis or epinosis. This is not Sophia wisdom. This is not uh, gnosko, epigonosko, any of those terms. This is oida. Oida is number 1492 in the Strong's Concordance. has 319 New Testament uses. Oida is a perfect tense verb for seeing, and it's used in the present tense for knowing. All right? And so... If uh, sometimes we do the same thing in English, and you know the teacher explains it, and the student says, "Oh, I see that." Okay, so if it's something you see, if you see what I'm saying tonight, then you will see it as you learn it, but then you will know it 
you know, after tonight. You will know it down the road. And that's the, the concept of a perfect tense verb is that it's something as a past completed action with present ongoing results. So having seen it, I now know it. And this is the idea of knowledge by experience, knowledge by doing, the, the, the how-to knowledge. The most awkward part of translating verse 12 is these words for get along and live in aren't in the Greek at all. Okay, And so since they're not in the Greek at all, and they're kind of arbitrarily thrown in there to try to flesh out the, the verbs that are there, or the nouns that are there, um, they kind of selected the expression get along, and they, exp- they selected the expression live in. But really, they're just throwing those words in there. You, you could swap them around if you wanted to, or you could substitute. Well, why don't you say, well, I, I know how to get along in prosperity. You know, We just don't think that if you're fabulously wealthy that you struggle getting along in, uh, in, your, in your wealth. Um, so I understand why they took poverty and, and rendered it with a get-along kind of idiom, and then prosperity with how to live in prosperity. But the, the, really, just take the little helping words out and just leave it alone. I know how to be humbled. I know how to be humbled. The verb tapenaos is a, is a passive voice. You're not doing it, it's being done to you. And the humility uh, is what it is if you're financially humble or in physical health or in uh, whatever other spectrum you want to relate this to. When you're down there on the deficient end of things, it's humbling. And so I know how to be humbled. I know how to be financially humbled. I know how to be uh, physically uh, healthy, unhealthily humbled. I know how to be, and then take it to the other direction. I know how to abound, how to abound. And there's a purpose for abundance. If I have abundant finances, abundant health, abundant uh, friendships, abundant relationships, abundant success, secular career success, or whatever the case may be. Again, any spectrum this applies. So I know how to be humbled. I know how to abound. I know how to abound. Somebody said the other day, I don't know if it's true or not, but you know, it must be. I read it on the internet, right? If um, How many lottery winners are either broke or dead? Within two years of winning their big lottery jackpot, I mean it's 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 crazy if 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 it's true, um, and it wouldn't surprise me actually, because you read in the Bible, you read about Solomon, you read about the prosperity testing, you read about Satan. The prosperity testing is harder than the adversity testing, and so there is a secret to success, to uh, being prosperous. Paul says, "I know." Wait a, that means we got to study. That means it doesn't just come naturally. We don't get saved and then have poured into us this mystical ability to uh, to manage finances or a mystical ability to uh, to to eat well and exercise and, and be nutritious or anything in the health department. All right. You have to learn and you have to know. And then this third step, this third phase is 12B. I have learned the secret. And that's an awkward rendering as well. And I don't, I'm not blaming the New American Standard Bible or the Lachman Foundation. This, this verse is a puzzle anyway for a lot of reasons. But um, the verb that's used here is bizarre. And it's only used here and it's bizarre that Paul would make use of it, particularly knowing how weighted it is, how loaded it is. And I think that's exactly why he used it. He wanted to get it across in a very loaded fashion. His readers, we, we're lost to this, but his first century readers would have been um, gobsmacked, okay? That he talked, that he used a verb like this. Are you kidding me? And so uh, this is what we're looking at here in, in terms of being, um, being initiated into the mysteries, being initiated into the mysteries of being hungry and being full being initiated into the ministries of having abundance and suffering need. So this whole thing about learning the secret, discovering the secret, apprehending the secret, it's, uh, it's a passive uh, tense. The verb is mueo, M-U-E-O, mueo. And this is the only place it shows up in the New Testament. And... Um, Although, I mean, musterion comes from the same root, uh, mu, uh, the mu part of musterion. 
Uh, and, and this is the verb that speaks of, of ushering into a mystery. Okay, And this is what, again, we've got to stop and I'll take tonight to explain this to you because mystery in the first century is not an Agatha Christie novel. It's not a, you know, we're not talking Sherlock Holmes who done it and let's solve the mystery. Okay, uh, And in the secular world, mystery is something entirely alien to what you and I understand in the New Testament as far as the church being a mystery. So that, if you've, if you've had good teaching on mystery doctrine, then you're in great shape to handle church age mystery. But if you've never studied the secular history on the mystery cults, the mystery religions and things there, then uh, it can be very, very confusing. So let's uh, take some time tonight and look at that. Um, how I'm going to render this, I'm just going to translate it. Uh, I've been initiated into the, uh, into the mysteries. I have been initiated into the mysteries of being fill, uh, filled and going hungry. The simultaneous filled and hungry mystery. And the simultaneous abundant lack mystery. Because he pairs them up. And he pairs up uh, being filled and being hungry and he pairs up having abundance and suffering need. And uh, he describes these as being ushered into the mystery. So what I think happens here, learning the secret, apprehending the secret, is, and, and all of us can do this, and we should do this, uh, we have that aha moment, that aha moment when the light comes on, right? When all of a sudden it clicks, and we go, ah, here we go. And this happens for Paul, for, for us, for anyone, when temporal life circumstances are placed in a frame of reference with spiritual life. And so Paul was able to do that. And he describes it. In Second Corinthians, he describes it in other places. You and I can describe it. And for us, the moment we get there, the moment we get there in our Christian walk, then we can, like Paul, we can say, I have been initiated into the mystery. All right, and it's, uh, it's a little tongue in cheek. It's a little uh, ironic that he would use the phrase this way. Uh, but given that he was writing to the Philippians, uh, I don't find it coincidental. Remember, they were the ones he wrote to talking about heavenly citizenship because of their unique circumstances there in Philippi as a Roman colony and the status they all had as Roman citizens. That was a big deal to them. I think likewise too. The uh, the uh, rampant uh, uh, nature of these mystery cults among the Roman citizens in the various parts of the Roman Empire, I think, is 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 not coincidental. That's why Paul wanted to use this verb here the way that he did. So we can talk about that too. But Second uh, Corinthians six verses seven through ten, I think, lays it out there, and it's a good pattern for all of us. We want to have this as a mindset. Anything in the temporal life, just take it and put it side by side with the spiritual life reality so that once you have them in context, then the earthly just fades away. The, uh, the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace, right? That's the hymn we sing, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And so um, these realities are such when we think of them in this way. So 2 Corinthians 6, verses 7 through 10, we talk about our Christian experience here in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God. And so what do we expect in the Christian way of life? And uh, when you get down to verse 8, you start to see the conundrum here, by glory and dishonor. Those appear to be opposites. Those appear to be mutually exclusive, but we have them both. How do we have them both? Well, because the world dishonors us, but God glories in us. Okay? By evil report and good report. How do we have both of those? Well, because the world will issue us an evil report. The world, the flesh, the devil, all our adversaries, the angelic conflict. They're going to they're gonna blaspheme. They're going to they're gonna, uh, say all kinds of evil things against you. Well, blessed are you. By evil report and good report. The good report comes when we stand face to face with Jesus Christ and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Regarded as deceivers, yet true. Regarded as deceivers, yet true. And this happens constantly. You know, we're a bunch of liars. We're a bunch of, you know, we're buffoons. We're idiots. Why do we believe the Bible? Why do we believe in creation and a creator? 
Because everybody knows that Big Bang is science, it's true, it really happened. And that evolution's fact, and all this stuff is real, and global warming is real, and all this other stuff. And boys might not really be boys, they might think they're girls, and then they're girls. And they've got this whole, we live in a crazy world that's just literally off the rails now. And they think we're the crazy ones, right? Regarded as deceivers, yet true. I'm waiting for, it's not going to be long, it's happening already in Europe, happening in Canada. It'll be considered child abuse if you train up your children with biblical norms and standards. You tell them that boys are boys and girls are girls and that'll be hate speech before you know it and you're abusing those children. And so the schools will take it upon themselves to uh, remedy our uh, deficiencies and how we're not raising our children the way they think we should be. As uh, unknown yet well-known. Those are opposites, are they not? Of course they're opposites. But how does the world look at things? How does God look at things? So take the earthly and put it in context with the spiritual reality. And the moment you do that, when you contextualize it, when temporal life circumstances are placed in a frame of reference with spiritual life, you put them in that frame of reference, you lay them side by side, and then the the momentary light affliction is not worthy to be compared to the eternal weight of glory. See, that's the secret. And when you adopt that, when you have that as a mindset, as Paul would say in in our verse tonight, you've been initiated into the mysteries. The mysteries of uh, being full and being hungry. Of having an abundance and suffering need. Or as being unknown yet well known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Just like Bruce Baker said in his book. As sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. And uh, I believe he wrote Second Corinthians on the heels of writing the uh, Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians that he finished his prison epistles and he left out of Ephesus and resumed his uh, that third missionary journey and uh, got to Philippi and wrote 2 Corinthians from Philippi. All right, so there's no, uh, it's not coincidental in my mind that the themes we have in Philippians are so represented in 2 Corinthians. All right, now let me read for you a thing here on the mysteries and um, I won't take a ton of time on it, but I think it's useful this is from the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary on the Mystery of Religions. And I'll pop it out and make it larger. Back row commandos, let me know. All right. <laughs> I should send it to my deacons. There was a cartoon I got on email the other day, and it was about. It was at a, a, a deacon's meeting with a pastor and his deacons. And uh, the pastor said, all right, the next item on my agenda, I want to talk about how we can encourage the members to not always be sitting on the back row. Have you seen the car? Oh, is it, in, it was in your newsletter. Oh, well, then never mind. You already know it. That was in Carol's newsletter. Oh, okay. Well, then great. Never mind. You read it before I did when you opened your email and saw your newsletter. All right. I know I read it somewhere. I am subject to amnesia from time to time. All right. Mystery religions. The mystery religions were secret religious cults that flourished during the Greco-Roman period. These religions involving the worship of deities from Greece, Anatolia, Egypt, Persia, and Syria manifested diversity in their points of geographic origin and heterogeneity in their patterns of historical development and theological orientation. And so there were a lot of things different about them, and yet there's enough similar about them that we can kind of lump them together and give them all this label as a mystery religion. In spite of their differences, the mystery religions warrant being discussed together because they all represent a particular form of religion. And so, yeah, they cropped up everywhere, right? And so and they would come right alongside. So in Greece, you have your Greek religion, you know, and you've got sacrifices and priests and Zeus and Apollo and Aphrodite and all the gods and all of their, the, the, their cult that goes with that. That includes animal ritual and priests and all that, holidays and all that. In Rome, it was the same thing, it was just with a Roman pantheon with sacrifices and priests and all that. Egypt, same thing. Well, in all these places where they had all these gods and all of these uh, religions, 
they also had these mystery religions whereby certain people, the special people, the wealthy people typically, they were able to go beyond the ritual. They were able to, sure, they would show up for, uh, you know, for a feast day and they would take part in the, in the religious stuff like all the other Greeks or all the other Romans or all the other whatever. But then they would also get to take part in the mystery uh, portion of it if they were initiated. Otherwise, they didn't talk about it. Okay? And so it kind of became a secret society within uh, all of these pantheon uh, religions. All right. So commonly originating in ancient tribal, even fertility rituals, these religions emphasize salvation for individuals who decided through personal choice to be initiated into the mysteries and thereby to feel close to each other and to the divine. And it really shouldn't surprise us that Satan would try to imitate some things that God's doing with the church and doing with real believers in different places. But uh, lo and behold, uh, Satan and his minions found out that these pesky humans were rather disc, you know, unhappy with their rituals, with their empty animal sacrificial ritual religions. And they felt kind of abandoned by the pantheon. The gods kind of ignored them. And so they, they had a need for something more, something deeper, something that would cause them to identify with a, with a family, see, with a spiritual family. They craved identification with a spiritual family. And so Satan and the demons created this idea of this mystery cult whereby you could be initiated into it and you would choose to be initiated into it. And some of the initiations are pretty rough. But uh, once you made it, you were in. All right. Unlike official public religions in which people were expected to show outward allegiance to the gods and goddesses of the state, the mystery religions stressed an inwardness and privacy of worship with groups that were frequently close-knit and egalitarian. The devotees of the mysteries ordinarily shared in celebrations that were public in nature. So outwardly they were still, you know, faithful Zeus worshipers. Um, parades and processions with music and dance, so forth, as well as secret ceremonies that remain largely unknown. Even to this day, historians are still struggling to, because they didn't write about it. There's, there's only little glimpses of where they got uh, exposed. In descriptions of the Eleusinian mysteries, probably the most famous of all the mysteries are the Eleusinian mysteries. It is said that the secret observances included things recited, things shown, and things performed. And such observances may have been typical of all mystery religions in general. Usually a sacred meal was shared by those initiated into the mysteries. And, you know, we can kind of see the echoes of communion. You know, our meal, our love feast, for example, for the early church. At least some of those who participated in the secret ceremonies underwent an extraordinary experience that could be described as death and rebirth. And uh, some of the mystery religions spoke of that in, uh, in imitation, of course, of Jesus and his resurrection. That some emotionally gripping experience was a fundamental significance to, in the mystery religions is confirmed by Aristotle, who concluded in a fragment preserved um, in Synesius that initiates into the mysteries did not learn anything, but rather had an experience and were put into a certain state of mind. Put into a certain state of mind. And so imagine some of these may have even been you know, early Pentecostals or some kind of a thing with their experience and their certain state of mind, their mindset. But now that being true, that's the history, that's the, that's the, the religion going on around. When Paul uses this term and says that he's been initiated into the mysteries of being full and going hungry, of having an abundance and suffering need, he really is. He's speaking about a, uh, an experience and a certain state of mind that he has come to through learning how to be content and knowing how to live. Knowing how to live. All right, now it's a very long article. Uh, we'll let it go um, for, for a lot of this. But the, the mu part of musterion derives from the Greek verb muin, or what we have tonight is mueo, literally to close. And it's a verb for closing. And it can be used of closing the eyes, closing the mouth, uh, because uh, your eyes are closed when the secret's kept from you. Uh, but then when your eyes are open, then you close your mouth and you don't tell anybody else about what your eyes were open to. So that's, you know, it's kind of a secret thing in, in, in this whole thing. So a, a person called a mustace, 
who had experienced the Musterion was required to maintain closed lips in order not to divulge the secret revealed at the private ceremony. Pledges of silence were intended to ensure that the holy secret would not be disclosed to profane outsiders. Most of the Mustai observed their vows of silence, and as a result, comparatively little is known of the secret ceremonies of the mystery religions. However, Christian converts who had once been initiated into the mysteries and Christian authors who claimed to possess knowledge about the mysteries sometimes were eager to expose what they believed to be a godless uh, secrets of those religions. It's like today when a Mormon gets saved and he's going to start writing books about all the things he learned in the, in the Mormon church or the Jehovah's Witness church or all, whatever, whatever cult he was saved out of. <coughs> so in the early church, some of the church fathers were initiates in those mystery cults and uh, got saved out of it. <coughs> All right. The Greek general Alcibiades. You ever watched the movie Patton? Patton was a big fan of Alcibiades. Um, the Greek general Alcibiades may well have been accused of betraying the Pledge of Silence by engaging in a parody of the Eleusinian mysteries of Demeter and Cory after a drinking during a drinking party. So if he uh, spilled the beans on that, that's probably why they were upset at him. Plutarch writes about that. <coughs> All right, let me get past some of this other stuff. There are, there's good writing there. Um, Pindar writes about it. Clement of Alexandria preserves it. All right, and then there's a summary of some of these. And the Eleusinian ministries are the best well-known. Centers on Corey and, and her defilement and death and then the Andanian mysteries, uh, Dionysius, the god of wine. <coughs> the uh, mystery initiation there involved a lot of drunkenness and sex. And uh, so quite popular among those that were initiated. Um, other mysteries, the Orphic hymns, Orpheus and the Orphic hymns was, was a part of this. The uh, mysteries of the great mother and Attis. The Anatolian mysteries of the great mother, the Magna Mater, uh, called Sibyl in Latin. Um, some of this stuff too is interesting because it really it's a it's a ripoff of the seed of the woman promise given to Ab, uh, given to Adam, right? The seed of the woman promise and and why uh, Isis and some of the other uh, Ishtar in ancient Babylon they had they developed a cult around a magical mother and a magical baby, and believe it or not. The artwork comes right out of the Renaissance. I mean, it's, it's, of course, it's thousands of years ahead of time. But they had a Madonna before the Roman Catholic Church made Mary the Madonna. All right? And it's curious how these things happen. And uh, this is one that's more gross because uh, <laughs> the Christian poet Prudentius describes with horror and disgust the gory um, ritual slaughter of a bull in which a person descended into a pit in order to be drenched with the blood of the sacrificial bull. And uh, a person who was thus bathed in the blood of a bull was reborn for eternity. The most spectacular followers of the great mother in Attis were the Galli, who imitated the mythological actions of Attis by castrating themselves and then adopting transvestite practices appropriate for those who had voluntarily become eunuchs devoted to the great mother. This is sick stuff, isn't it? I mean, goodness. According to rather late sources, during the springtime, a Roman festival in honor of the great mother in Addis commemorated the death of Addis in a dramatic fashion and reaffirmed life and joy in a portion of the festival aptly named the Hilaria. Yes, and we agree, it was hilarious. Anyway more of those. All right. Then in Egypt there was Isis and Osiris. Again, you got a magic mother and a miracle baby and uh, the baby dies, comes back to life. The mother's so sad. And notice that it's the mother that gets celebrated, right? Like in the Roman Catholic doctrine, Mary was the co-redemptrix standing there at the cross, ministering as a priestess, as the queen of heaven. How evil is that? Jesus is the Savior, and Mary called him her Savior. Anyway, so here's uh, the mysteries of Mithras, different things. Relationship to early Christianity. This is very worthwhile uh, because 
as these were studied in the 19th century, as these were studied by the German liberals, here's what they did with it. The German liberals didn't believe the Bible anyway. They didn't believe that God wrote it or that maybe even there is a God. But they, they found all these similarities with the mystery cults. And then they went to the New Testament and said, wow, Paul sure talks about Musterion a lot. He must have brought that in from the mystery cults of the first century. And in fact, Christianity was invented because it was adapted from the mystery cults. And so they did this whole thing about how the mysteries came from, or how Christianity developed, not out of Judaism, but they, they developed out of the mystery cults and just claimed the Old Testament as a, as a legacy. Anyway, all that's garbage. And Metzger does a good work uh, refuting that in his, in his writings. So, um, this is a very lengthy article that gets us to the bottom of it. This is in the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary, by the way. If you want a, a PDF, just email me. I'll make a PDF out of it and send it to you. He, he then, the author then actually gives you a pretty lengthy bibliography, including probably the best one out there by M.W. Meyer called The Ancient Mysteries, a source book. Uh, 1987 publication date, uh, M.W. Meyer, Ancient Mysteries, a source book. I mean, if you want to get that at the library or obtain a copy somehow. Anyway, it's front and center in his bibliography, and he really quotes him well. He quotes him well because it's him. <laughs> the author of this article is Marvin W. Meyer. So uh, he cited his own book in his own article in this, which he should. I mean, he's the author of the book. But he also cites B.M. Metzger, Bruce Metzger, and uh, the work there on the mysteries. Methodology and the study of mystery religions in early Christianity. That also is very worthwhile. Metzger's a good guy, good scholar on that. Okay, so I realize that was a 15-minute side trip. The point being, though, this verb, when he says mueo, when he says, when I've learned the secret, he's saying, I have been initiated. It's a technical term. Mueo in the passive is a technical term, TT, technical term of the mystery religions. In other words, initiate into the mysteries. Initiate into the ministries, uh, mysteries. And his readers in Philippi would have taken it that way. They would not have taken it any other way. When he said, I have learned, I know, I have been initiated. I have been initiated into the mysteries of being full and being hungry, of having an abundance and suffering need. Point E, having been initiated into the mysteries, as it were, having been initiated into the mysteries, as it were, Paul knows the secret of sated hunger and abounding lack. He knows the secret of sated hunger and abounding lack. These contrasts are not mutually exclusive but corporately inclusive in the body of Christ. And we'll see how far we get with this before the bottom of the hour. Um, Any questions on this? I, I hope I've explained it well enough that he has not been initiated into a mystery cult. He's just using the verb. And he's using the verb in such a way that they take it in the way that he intends them to take it. Okay? And it's almost like if you know, if you know the person and you know what he's trying to say, then it makes a whole lot more sense. Uh, but if you don't, then you know, it might open itself up to confusion. I don't want anyone to leave here tonight with confusion. But um, it's like the way terms are used. The, the word Catholic. The word Catholic is a perfectly fine word. It means universal, right? It just means universal is all it means. And we're all a part of the universal church. We're all a part of the bride of Christ, right? It doesn't matter if you're a member of Austin Bible Church or, or Lost Pines Bible Church or Corpus Christi Bible Church or whatever. You have a local church that you identify with, but every believer is a part of the church universal. Every believer from Pentecost to Rapture is a part of the church universal. So just by vocabulary alone, we're not wrong if, if we say we're Catholic. We're part of the church universal, right? The problem is, though, if you say that, 
to the wrong person who doesn't understand, you know, the, the tongue-in-cheek or doesn't understand, well then they're not going to take it that way. Because you're saying, well I'm Catholic and they're going to think, oh, you're Roman Catholic, right? You, you, you're subject to the Pope and his bishops and the hierarchy and whatever. And so it lends itself to misunderstanding but if it serves the illustration you're trying to get across, you may want to use the term just to shock the person you're teaching so that he realizes, oh wow. How about that? You're right, I'm Catholic too. And they, you know, they, they learn the, the blessings of the universal church and, the, and what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. Or how about this one? Did you know I'm charismatic? Okay. I'm charismatic. Yeah. I'll tell anybody that. Yeah, I'm charismatic. Well, what do I mean by that though? I have a spiritual gift. That's right. Uh, a charisma is, 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 charis is grace. A charisma is a, is a gift, is a grace thing. And my gift is pastor teacher. You know, what's yours? And you can just spark it and say, you know, I'm charismatic and so are you. What's your gift? My gift is pastor teacher. And, and, and so we can use the term based upon what it really means. But if we're not careful, then, of course, the wrong person hears us say that. And what, and what do they think? Yeah, yeah, they think I'm, yeah. I'm Pentecostal or I'm rolling in the aisles or I'm babbling in tongues or other things like that, right? I'm going to do some different things. All right. <clears throat> I used to work with a couple of uh, Pentecostals. They were the nicest guys. They love Jesus. I, I don't, uh, it's just, it's sad to me that, that um, you know, they, they'd come in on a Monday morning talking about their weekend and talking about their church services, whatever. And they were, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, we were, we were casting out demons from, from church on Sunday. And all excited, like that was a great thing. And, and I'm, I'm freaked out. I'm like, well, you know, really? In your church? You know? And, and uh, yeah, and they were all excited about it. And well, don't you? Uh, you know, and, and I wanted to say, uh, no, we don't invite them in in the first place, you know, but I didn't say that out loud. If they could read my mind, they, they wouldn't know, but. but uh, the, the point is, though, if you say the thing in the wrong way, even though you might be uh, vocabulary might be accurate, um, just make sure you're communicating the right thing to the right people, right at the right time. So Paul is talking about being ushered into the mysteries, being initiated into the mysteries, as it were. Okay, his readers know that's not that he's not literally being ushered into a mystery cult. But they understand the sense of what he's saying because he's using that in his in his uh, illustration. He's using that in his communication here. So he's learned, he knows, it's as if he's been ushered into the mysteries of, of uh, hungry fullness or uh, uh, impoverished wealth or wealthy poverty. Or uh, These things are placed in juxtaposition as if they're simultaneously true all at the same time. All right, they're not mutually exclusive, but corporately inclusive in the body of Christ, and and that's another way to look at it too. Is uh, maybe I have an abundance, but my brother has lack. So uh, put the, put two and two together, and what do you figure out? That brothers provide for brothers, sisters provide for sisters. The body of Christ takes care of the body of Christ. That your abundance is provision for someone else's lack, so that there is equality in the body of Christ. And and a month from now, it could be the shoe can be on the other foot; it can be turned right around. And that's uh, the nature of it. So um, we'll have these. And, and I think Sunday morning we'll come back and we'll look at these. Romans 12, 15, 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 23. All things belong to you. You belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. And so uh, of the all things that belong to you, that includes uh, your poverty and somebody else's wealth. Your hunger and somebody else's fullness your uh, physical health and somebody else's physical infirmities. That all of them belong to all of us as we serve one another in the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 26, 2 Corinthians 8, 13 and 14, 2 Corinthians 9, 8. So we'll tackle those Sunday morning, Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, we thank you for tonight. Thank you for the blessings we have to study. Father, uh, <laughs> We are so, when we study the history of what things were like 2,000 years ago, it, it's uh, bizarre. Uh, some of the things seem unreal. Um, and what a contrast, Father, because when we read the Bible, it's like it was written today. It was written, uh, it's, it's eternal, it's timeless, it's 
alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And I thank you for that. So help us to study, help us to learn, help us to grow. If there's things that are um, just so culturally alien to our modern understanding, then help us to, uh, to learn and adapt and adjust our thinking to how the ancient world would have seen it so that we don't miss the point of what uh, uh, the Scripture writers were, were sending to their intended recipients. And Father, all of this is uh, incumbent upon us. You command us to uh, rightly divide the word of truth. If we're sloppy with the Scriptures, we're not rightly dividing. And so we want to uh, rightly divide as your word commands us to do. I do thank you for, uh, again, for Pastor Bruce Baker and the book that he wrote. I ask that he sells millions of copies and makes all kinds of money. But the real issue, Father, is not only provide for him and his wife and his family, but um, this is, I think this is powerful truth and needs to get into the hands of, of believers everywhere that we can serve one another, minister to one another, particularly in the emotionally difficult time of, of physical death. So uh, I pray that uh, this book gets a, gets a wide distribution and, and, a, and a, a vast exposure. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.